It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast, a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is a bit of a special episode. It's our 100th regular episode of the podcast, which is pretty crazy. If you include bonus episodes and Forza Napoli Worldwide, it's actually the 129th episode, so time has really flown by. We've got three parts for you today. In part one, we'll review our win on Tuesday against Udinese. In part two, I'll very quickly cover the other action at the top of the table. I'll also cover the latest news around Napoli because it's been a while since we updated the news. And I'll do a mini feature on the rivalry between Napoli and Salernitana. Finally, in part 3, we'll preview our match on Sunday against Fiorentina. So let's start with our 5-1 win over Udinese on Tuesday. Piotr Zielinski, Fabian Ruiz, Chucky Lozano, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, and Lorenzo Insigne scored for Napoli, while Stefano Okaka scored the lone goal for Udinese. This was a match where Udinese played like a team in the middle of the table with only 3 matches remaining. In other words, they played like a team that had very little to play for. It was a very sloppy performance from Udinese. Their passing was poor, their defending was poor, and they hardly created anything in the attack. Udinese had only two shots on target, yet they managed to score on one of them. Udinese were poor, but I thought Napoli also played quite well. We got goals from five different goal scorers, and Victor Osimhen wasn't one of them. Nevertheless, he was still one of our best players in this match. I thought Lorenzo Insigne and Timo Bakayoko were very good as well. But for me, Fabian Ruiz was the man of the match. We'll talk about all of that in this review and we'll revisit our three keys to the match. But first, let's get to the starting lineups. Luca Gotti made two changes to the squad that started against Bologna and three changes to our predicted 11. Udinese lined up in their usual 3-5-2 with Juan Musso in goal. Marvin Ziegler started over Bram Neutink in the back three. 
He played on the right with Rodrigo Becao shifting to the middle. We thought Becao would sit this one out after picking up a knock against Bologna, but he was fit to play. Kevin Bonifazi played on the left side of the three-man back line. Jens Strieger Larsson started at left wing back and Nahuel Molina started at right wing back. Jean-Victor Makengo started in the center of the midfield, pushing Rodrigo DePaul to the center right. DePaul tends to drift to the right side anyways, while Wallace remained at center left. Finally, Stefano Okaka and Roberto Pereira started together up top. For Napoli, Gattuso made two changes to our predicted 11 and to the squad that he started against Spezia. Alex Meret started again in goal. Amir Rachmani and Kostas Manolas started again at centre-back with Kaladu Koulibaly and Nikola Maksimovic still out. Elsid Hisai started at left-back. We thought Mario Rui might get the start because of his ability to cross the ball. Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Temoe Bakayoko started over Diego Dema in the double pivot alongside Fabian Ruiz. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing. Chucky Lozano started over Matteo Politano on the right wing. That wasn't a huge shock. We talked about that with Dom on the latest episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide. With Udinese crowding the midfield, having a player like Politano who likes to cut in would only crowd the midfield even more, whereas a player like Lozano has the ability to stretch that back three. Finally, Piotr Zielinski started in the 10 spot behind Victor Osimen. So those were the starting lineups, next let's revisit our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match was that we could not lose the ball in the midfield, Udinese played with that 5-man midfield and more importantly they have Rodrigo De Paul, who came into this match leading Udinese in both goals and assists. We definitely achieved this goal, Napoli pinned Udinese down in their own half, so that made it very difficult for Udinese to counter. As Don Hutchinson said in the broadcast, you want De Paul making 15-yard runs in the attack, not 40-yard runs. DePaul did very little in this match, yet he still managed to get an assist. We'll come back to that goal in just a moment. Something Don Hutchinson said that I didn't agree with was his suggestion that the Udinese backline needed to play 10 to 15 yards closer to the halfway line. I don't think they were intentionally playing that deep. Rather, I think they were pushed that deep by Osimen. Even if they did push 10 to 15 yards further up the pitch, that would expose Udinese to the ball over the top, so they had to pick their poison with Osimen, and you definitely want him in front of you rather than behind you. This is why Osimen is so difficult to mark. When you hear pundits talk about how Osimen creates space, that's basically it in a nutshell. He forces that backline to play deeper, which then creates more space in the midfield, particularly on the long ball when the opponent's forwards and midfielders are playing higher up the pitch. Our second key to the match was that we needed to play triangles in the midfield to break down Udinese's low block. We actually didn't play a whole lot of quick passes in the middle of the field. That would have been one way to break down the low block. Instead, we pressed high to win the ball back in Udinese's half, and we used our width to stretch the Udinese midfield and back line. We saw a lot of switches, and we saw a lot of movement off the ball. On the left side, Insignia often drifted into the middle of the park to open up the wing for Hisai. On the right side, Lozano used his pace to pull that back line apart as we discussed. As I mentioned, Osimen's presence alone pushed Udinese to play even deeper than I think they wanted to play, which then created space in the midfield for Fabian to distribute the ball. That was something I underestimated. I assume that a low block effectively negates the long ball and therefore negates Osimen. That was definitely not the case. The low block negates the counterattack, but it definitely did not negate Osimen. Even while being marked, he is still effective on the long ball because of his size. We saw that in the first half where Fabian played a gorgeous long ball to Osimen. He took the ball down on his chest, stretched to tap the ball to Lozano, 
and we nearly got a chance out of it. I think Lozano should have taken the shot there, but I wonder if he was trying to return the favor after Osiman set him up against Spezia. We also saw the long ball on the first goal where Bakayoko played the ball to Osiman. He lost the header to Bekau, who had the ball straight to Zielinski. Zielinski gave it back to Osiman, and his turn on Bekau was just ridiculous. We talked about Osiman's first touch in that episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide with Dom. That touch to set up the shot was world class. Even the Di Lorenzo goal came from a corner kick that was won by Osimen. Zielinski played the long ball on this play, and Osimen took on three Udinese players to win the corner. So we didn't break down the low block with quick passes, but we did break it down with the long ball. Finally, our third key to the match was that we needed to score at least two goals because Udinese rarely score more than one. We obviously achieved that goal scoring five. We've really padded our goal differential in our recent matches. We beat Lazio 5-2, then Torino 2-0. We drew Cagliari, then we beat Spezia 4-1, and now we've beat Udinese 5-1. So in our last five matches alone, we've improved our goal differential by 12 goals, which is now plus 43. We now have 83 goals on the season. It feels like it's been so long, but this is still Gattuso's first full season in charge. Credit to Matt Lenev for pointing out on Twitter that 83 goals is better than two of the three seasons that Sadi was in charge, which we consider to be some of the best attacking football we've ever played. In Sadi's three seasons, we scored 80, 94, and 77 goals respectively. With two matches to play, we're not going to score 11 more goals, but that is still very impressive. Adding 12 goals to our goal differential is the equivalent of winning the tiebreak over Juventus should we finish tied with them on points. After Juve's win over Sassuolo, their goal differential is plus 35, which is 8 goals behind us. The only way that we finish tied with Juve on points is if we tie our final two games and Juve win one and lose one. So Juve would have to win that one game by at least 9 goals, which is not going to happen. So we achieved all of our keys to the match, and we got a big win. I want to cover a few more topics before I close this review. Let's start with the play of Udinese. I thought they were really quite poor in this match. As I said at the top, they really did play like a team that didn't have much to play for. Even though I want teams from Campania to stay up, this is why I didn't mind Benevento losing to Cagliari. That ensured Udinese were safe from relegation and therefore had nothing left to play for. It really showed in this match there really wasn't any urgency from Udinese. You sensed that had they still been in the relegation battle, they would have pushed forward more, especially after falling behind. Their passing was really poor. Twice in the first half, Strieger Larsen played dangerous passes into the middle of the pitch inside the Udinese half. One led to a hard shot by Insigne on target, but it was straight at Musso. The other led to that beautiful touch by Insigne around Rodrigo Becao. Even DePaul played a couple of wayward passes in this match, which is not very like him. And then, of course, there was the pass by Musso that led to Lozano's goal. Lozano didn't have a great match, but I thought he did really well on that play, first to pounce on that pass, and then to finish while being off balance. I thought Udinez's defending was pretty static at times. We saw that on the Di Lorenzo goal, with Zonal marking in the area. And as I said, they had only two shots on target all match. They had only five shot attempts all match and never looked like much of a threat. Even the goal came out of nowhere. I do want to talk about that goal. It started with a pass by Rodrigo DePaul to Stefano Okaka with his back to the goal. He outmuscled Manolas before turning and firing a perfect shot between Manolas and Rachmani who was closing him down. On any goal, there's a natural temptation to point the blame. I know some weren't impressed with Alex Medet's positioning on the play, suggesting he was a little too close to the near post. 
Perhaps that's true. I simply don't know enough about goalkeeping to comment on that. I think if you had to point blame at someone, it would be Kostas Manolas. Our friend Dom did a great job of breaking this goal down on Napoli Talk. Dom rightly pointed out that Manolas should have pushed up on Okaka to put him offside. To me, that was the most egregious error on the play. I don't think the marking was actually that bad on this play. Manolas was tight on Okaka, but Okaka just outmuscled the Greek. He used his arm to maintain just enough separation to turn, and then the shot was really well struck. Okaka is a class act, by the way. We saw him give Gattuso a warm embrace coming out of the tunnel for the start of the second half, and after the match, he dedicated that goal to his mother. I'll close the review by acknowledging a few individual performances. For the second time in as many starts, I thought Bakayoko put in a solid shift. He did make one wayward pass, but besides that, I thought he did quite well, especially with his contributions on the defensive end. He intercepted quite a few passes. I thought Lorenzo Insigne had a very good match as well. I think in the last few games, his deliveries from set pieces have been much better. I find that he tends to underhit his crosses, but he got a lovely assist in the Spezia game, and he was playing some dangerous crosses in this one. He's always willing to track back to help defend. You can never say he doesn't put in the effort. He seemed to play more of a free-roaming role in this match, often drifting into the center of the field, and he was hitting the target with his shots. In the 77th minute, he fired an absolute rocket into the bar, and in stoppage time, he scored a beautiful goal. His technique was excellent on this goal, controlling the ball with his chest and hitting it first time on the volley into the bottom corner. That was his 18th goal of the season, which tied his career best set in the 2016-17 campaign with two games to spare. But for me, Fabian Ruiz was the man of the match. You could see from the early stages that he showed up to play. He was covering a lot of ground, he was getting into shooting positions, and he was distributing the ball really well. He played a lovely cross early in the match that Osimhen headed down to Di Lorenzo, but the ball bounced awkwardly for the fullback, and he put his shot over the bar. He was constantly looking for the long ball to Osimhen. In fact, everyone was. There was one he played with the outside of his boot that was really nice and led to a scoring chance. Steve Banyard and Don Hutchinson used the analogy of an American football quarterback to describe Fabian's play. As they said, he was pulling the strings and he has the range of passing, vision, and execution to play that role. For a minute, it did look like Fabian might have to be taken out of this match after he took a knock from Okaka. He looked like he was in a lot of pain, so much so that Diego Demis started warming up on the touchline, but fortunately he was okay and played on, and not long after that, he scored the goal of the match. This was a beautifully taken goal. I talked about Napoli spreading the play earlier, we saw that again on this goal. It started with a Napoli corner kick that Udinese cleared out to safety. He side was the last man back and he spread the ball out wide to Zielinski, who cut it back to Fabian in exactly the area that he likes to shoot from. The strike was so perfect that it didn't even occur to me that Zielinski added an assist to go with his goal. Zielinski now has 8 goals and 10 assists on the season. So that will do for part 1. In part 2, we'll quickly check in on the top of the table and we'll cover the latest news. Sit 
Part two by taking a look at the top of the table. We've had two rounds since our last update, so let's start with Juventus. They had a huge game against Milan at the weekend, which they lost 3 0. Milan scored some beautiful goals in that match, first from Brahim Diaz just before the break. He took advantage of a goalkeeping error by Wojtek Szczesny. Anti Rebic scored the goal of the match after replacing Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who left the match with yet another injury. Fikayo Tomori put the match away, rising up like Ronaldo to head home the third. That was a crucial goal because Juve won the first meeting 3-1, so Milan now own the tiebreaker. Milan could have had another, but Frank Hesse was stopped from the penalty spot, so Juve's Champions League hopes were on the line on Wednesday in a tough match against an informed Sassuolo side. Sassuolo were the better side for most of the match, but Juve picked up a very important win. Early in the match, Domenico Berardi had a penalty kick stopped by Gigi Buffon, who recently announced that he will not re-sign with Juventus next season. Adrian Rabiot was terrible for Juve. His turnover led to that penalty, but he atoned for that error, scoring a beautiful goal shortly after the miss. Cristiano Ronaldo doubled Juve's lead just before the break. That was his 100th goal for Juve, making him the first player ever to score 100 goals with three different clubs. Giacomo Raspadori pulled one back early in the second half, but with Sassuolo pushing forward, they exposed themselves to the counterattack, and that's how Paolo Dybala scored his 100th goal for Juve to put this one away. Milan absolutely pummeled Torino on Wednesday, winning 7-0. Teo Hernandez scored a brace in that one. Franchesi scored his ninth goal from the penalty spot this season. Brahim Diaz scored his second in as many matches, and Antti Rebic scored a hat-trick in 12 minutes. Atalanta got two comfortable wins against far inferior opponents. At the weekend, they beat already relegated Parma 5-2. They followed that up with a 2-0 win over struggling Benevento on Wednesday. Luis Muriel and Ruslan Malinovsky continue their strong run of form. Muriel scored three goals over the two games. He's eclipsed the 20-goal mark for the first time in his career. He's actually on 22 goals now and he only became a regular starter about midway through the season. Malinowski has at least one goal contribution in nine consecutive matches. He has five goals and eight assists over that period. Meanwhile, Benevento are now four points back of Torino and Spezia in the safety zone, and five points back of Cagliari with two games to play, but they are by no means out of it. Benevento play Crotone at the weekend. Surely they'll win that match. If they don't, then frankly they deserve to be relegated. Meanwhile, Spezia and Torino play each other, and Cagliari play Milan at the San Siro. Torino also have to play their makeup game against Lazio, but you have to think they're going to lose that one as well. So heading into the final round, we could well see Benevento on 34 points, one of Spezia and Torino on 35, and Cagliari on 36. 
Benevento will want Spezia to beat Torino because they play Torino on the final match day, so the battle for survival is almost as good as the battle for Champions League. Finally, Lazio lost 2-0 to Fiorentina on the weekend. They were the latest club to fall victim to Dusan Vlahovic, who scored both of the goals for La Viola. That now makes it next to impossible for Lazio to qualify for the Champions League. Parma came close to putting the final nail in the coffin on Wednesday, but Ciro Immobile scored a 95th minute winner to keep Lazio's hopes alive. So after an exciting win on Tuesday, all of our competitors won on Wednesday. Atalanta remained in 2nd place on 75 points, tied with Milan. We are still in 4th on 73 points, and Juve remained 1 point behind us on 72 points. Finally, Lazio are in 6th on 67 points, but they still have that one game in hand against Torino. We have Fiorentina next, we'll preview that game in part 3. The big game on the weekend will be Juve versus Inter at the Allianz. I think Inter are definitely going to be playing for the win there. Beyond the fact that Antonio Conte and Beppe Marotta will be looking to exact revenge on their former employer, I think this match could have serious implications for the next championship. In my mind, if Juve replaced Pirlo with a more seasoned coach like Max Allegri, then they are probably still the top contender for the Scudetto next season. However, Juve are a club that budget with the assumption that they will be playing in the Champions League. If they don't make it to the Champions League, they are in serious financial trouble. They'll likely have to offload a number of players. My good friend Mike Bonadiman, who's been on the pod a couple of times, tells me that Juve's goal is to make 100 million euros in plus Valenza by June 30th. Obviously, that means Juve won't be able to buy too many players on the market, which means the issues they currently have in the midfield are unlikely to be resolved. I'm sure a new coach can get more out of that midfield than Pirlo does, but I still don't think there's enough quality there. Surely Inter know that if they win this match, they improve their chances of winning a Scudetto for the second consecutive season. And it's especially important for Inter because they too have financial issues, so they also will not be able to buy too many players. Milan play against a Cagliari team that is not out of the relegation battle just yet, so that could be a tricky fixture for them. Atalanta played Genoa, which you would expect to be a fairly easy win for the side from Bergamo, and Lazio have a big derby against Roma, so plenty of action to keep an eye on this weekend. Alright, so let's move on to the news. I want to start with an update on the new shirt and technical sponsors. If you don't already, you need to follow Atutella della Malia de Napoli, which means to protect the Napoli shirt. You can find them on Twitter at Tutella Malia NA. It is the most reliable source on anything related to Napoli's kits. They posted a great thread summarizing how the kit sponsorship has progressed so far. They confirmed a couple of rumors that were circulating over the last few months or so. First, Macron did indeed make an important offer, but the parties have not spoken since the end of April. There were also previously reports about another big brand who preferred not to reveal itself to avoid creating too many expectations. Apparently that brand was Puma. The German company offered a two-year deal with the intent of self-producing, but that opportunity seems to have slipped away. Armani are currently the frontrunners. The impression from insiders is that they are beating around the bush while the club waits to see if they qualify for the Champions League. As for the main sponsors, the relationship with Aqualeta is not as solid as it has been in the past, but the expectation is that this sponsorship will continue. It's been known for some time now that this will be the final season with MSC, barring a sensational change of heart. And finally, Kimbo would have liked to move to the front of the shirt, but it looks like they will remain on the back. 
In other news, the date and location of the summer retreat has been confirmed. Napoli returns to Di Mauro Folgarida in Trentino after spending the last summer retreat at Castel di Sangro. This is the 10th time the retreat will be held in Val di Sole, and it will take place from July 15th to the 25th. Napoli is still expected to visit Castel di Sangro this summer, though. The mayor of Castel di Sangro, Angelo Caruso, told Radio Kiss Kiss that after the retreat at Di Mauro, the club will make a stop abroad for a friendly tournament, then return to Castel di Sangro from August 3rd to 4th and 12th to 13th. I'll close the news with some transfer rumors. As always, you need to take all of these rumors with a grain of salt. Often the papers bend the truth or simply make things up just for clicks. Right now, you might actually have to take these rumors with two grains of salt because the players we sign will depend on who the manager will be next season, which is still a big question mark. This is the time of year where agents start to make their rounds on various platforms, and a common theme is they're all promoting the players, but qualifying their statements by saying that it all depends on who the next coach will be. So let's start with a player who could well be departing, especially if we don't qualify for the Champions League, and that is Fabian Ruiz. Gazzetta dello Sport are reporting that the 50 million euro offer from Atletico Madrid remains on the table. Fabian currently has two years remaining on his contract with an annual salary of 1.5 million euros. That is absolutely a discount. Just to put that salary into context, Elif Elmas earns the same wages as Fabian. Gazzetta are also reporting that Fabian has declined the club's request to extend his contract. Apparently PSG, Real Madrid, and Barcelona are all interested in the Spaniard, which explains why De Laurentiis reportedly wants a massive release clause in the neighborhood of 100 million euros. Fabian's value is currently estimated to be 50 to 60 million euros, but with the second half of the season he's had, I think he could fetch a healthier return than that. If Fabian is sold, his replacement could be Mattia Zaccagni. We were heavily linked to Zaccagni back in January. The reports at the time was that he would sign a deal similar to Amir Rachmani, where he would spend the remainder of the season on loan at Hellas Verona. That never happened, and Zaccagni's form has dropped dramatically along with the form of the entire club, really. His agent, Fausto Patti, spoke to Radio Marte this week, where he said that Zaccagni can play in different roles, including in the 4-2-3-1. He noted the discussions with Napoli in January, but also pointed out that there are new variables. He said it seems Napoli will have a new coach, and that will dictate what kind of budget the club will have. On Wednesday, Lega Serie A posted a picture on Instagram of Fabian Di Lorenzo and Zielinski with the caption, Welcome to the party. Apparently, Zaccani liked the picture, which has only fueled the speculation of a possible transfer to Napoli. Speaking of agents and radio interviews, Mario Giuffredi practically has a part-time job at Radio Kiss Kiss for how often he goes on the radio there. Amongst the many players that he represents is Napoli-owned Gennaro Tutino. Tutino spent this season on loan at Salernitana where he helped them achieve promotion to Serie A. He finished the season with 13 goals. Had he scored two more goals, he would have triggered an automatic purchase for 5 million euros. Salernitana still have the option to redeem Tutino, but Napoli have a counter-redemption option. Tutino's preference is to stay in Salerno, but Giuffredi told Kiss Kiss that he doesn't think Salernitana will redeem him. However, he said he does deserve to play in Serie A, and in his opinion, could easily play for Napoli. I doubt that happens, even though Tutino is a left winger, which we do have a need for as a backup for Insigne. He's played mostly as a center forward this season. Between Osimen, Mertens, and Petania, we don't really have a need for another center forward. Now, Gazzetta are reporting that Napoli could look to move Petania on because he hasn't really lived up to expectations. 
Even if we did move on, Transfer Market are reporting that Atletico Madrid, Lazio, and Napoli are interested in Santos striker Kai Jorge. Santos president Andres Renda recently said in a press conference that both the player and his family have come to the conclusion that it is time for Kyle to go to Europe. I'll close the transfer rumors with a couple of quick hits. Gazzetta dello Sport are reporting that 22-year-old Spanish centre-back Francisco Montero is on his way to replace Nikola Maximovic. He's currently owned by Atletico Madrid, but is on loan at Besiktas. The agent of Fiorentina player Lucas Martinez Cuarta, Gustavo Goni, told Calcio Napoli 24 that Napoli were interested in Cuarta before he signed with Fiorentina and they would listen to offers, but it all depends on who will be the next Fiorentina coach. Corriere dello Sport claimed that Napoli have made an inquiry to Udinese about Rodrigo De Paul, who's expected to cost around 35 million euros. They're also reporting that Napoli are still interested in sporting fullback Nuno Mendes, who would cost 20 million euros. Finally, according to Gazzetta dello Sport, Giuntoli is very interested in Club Bruges' 20-year-old attacking midfielder Charles de Ketelaer and 19-year-old Sievert Hegheim Mansverk. He plays for the second division Norwegian club, Sondal FC. The last thing I want to talk about in part 2 is Salernitana, who have earned promotion to Serie A. They play in Salerno, of course, so at minimum Serie A will have two clubs from Campania next season, and just maybe three clubs if Benevento can find a way to stay up. Now, the reason I want to talk about Salernitana is because I saw a lot of people online saying what a big rivalry this is. I suspect most people saying that were simply reacting to the video circulating of Salernitana fans celebrating their promotion and saying things like, those who don't jump in celebration are Napolitano. But if you've listened to this pod for long enough, you know that I'm pretty detail-oriented and a couple of videos on Twitter weren't going to do it for me. So I explored this one a little bit further, and while there are a few cool stories which I'll get to in a minute, I think we may actually be overhyping this rivalry a little bit. First of all, this is a regional derby. It falls under the category of Derby della Campania, which is used to describe any match between two clubs from Campania, including Avellino, Benevento, Caserta, Cavese, Juvestabia, Napoli... Nocerina, Paganese, Salernitana, Savoia, Sorrento, and so on. As you can imagine, most of those matches happen in the lower divisions, but even the ones that happen in the top flight like Napoli-Benevento are nowhere near as intense as city derbies. The Derby della Madonnina in Milano, the Derby della Capitale in Roma, and the Derby della Lanterna in Genoa, for example, are far more intense. Now, Salernitana does have a long history of playing against clubs from Napoli, dating all the way back to the 1920s, but the first professional meeting between Salernitana and the club that we now refer to as SSC Napoli took place in 1945, and I would say that is the match where this rivalry started. There was no national championship that year because of the Second World War. If you've ever looked at the list of Serie A winners, you will see that there was this one year where there was no winner. In place of the national championship, a series of regional championships were played, including one in Campania. There were no teams from Campania playing in Serie A at the time. Napoli and Salernitana were the two participants from Serie B, and then there were a bunch of other teams from lower divisions. The first competitive meeting between these two clubs was in that regional championship. The stadium was full, split evenly between Napoli fans and Salernitana fans, Napoli opened the scoring in the 18th minute and Salernitana equalized in the 25th minute. But a draw was a useless result for either side so the pace of the match picked up after that. There was plenty of controversy and drama in the match, particularly in the 35th minute when match official Demetrios Tampakia awarded a dubious penalty to Napoli. 
The fans were so irate about the call that they invaded the pitch. Fearing for his life, Stampakia threw himself to the ground and played dead. With a crowd of concerned fans surrounding his body, the police eventually got everything under control. And once things cooled down, Stampakia got up and continued to officiate the match. After all of that, Mazzetti missed the penalty for Napoli, but the clashes between the fans continued in the stands. In the end, the match finished 1-1. The scenes were so chaotic that the Stadio Comunale di Salerno, later named the Stadio Vestuti in honor of the club's founder, was banned indefinitely. The next two meetings were in the Campionato Misto del Sud, or the Mixed Southern Championships. The war was still causing disruption, so Serie A was split into two divisions that season, one for the north and one for the south, so we didn't actually play each other in Serie A until the 1947-48 campaign. Both meetings resulted in draws, 3-3 in Salerno and 0-0 in Napoli. Those were the only meetings between these two clubs in Serie A. Both teams were relegated at the end of that season, Salerno for finishing in the relegation zone, and Napoli for attempted match-fixing. Since then, there have been 8 meetings in the Coppa Italia and 12 meetings in Serie B. Napoli have a record of 5 wins, 2 draws, and 1 loss in the Coppa Italia, and 4 wins, 6 draws, and 2 losses in Serie B. We have had a few notable matches against Salernitana. In that 3-3 draw in the 47-48 season, we went ahead 2-0 before conceding 3 straight goals. That third goal was in the 86th minute before we then equalized in the 89th minute. In the 85-86 season, we won the Coppa Italia meeting 3-1 with Maradona scoring a brace. After returning to Serie B in 2001, we picked up a 1-1 draw. Leandro Lazzaro came off the bench and scored a 94th minute equalizer for Salernitana. The most recent matches were both in the Coppa Italia. In 08-09, we eliminated Salernitana in the round of 16 with a 3-1 win. Pia, Arturo Di Napoli, and Matic Hamsik scored for Napoli. The following season, we eliminated Salernitana again, this time in the third round, with a 3-0 win. Christian Maggio, El Poco Lavezzi, and Erwin Hoffer scored in that one. So that's a brief history of this Campagna Derby. As you can see, since the first meeting in Serie A 72 years ago, it hasn't really been that heated. I suspect this is a rivalry where Salernitana fans hate Napoli, and we're rather indifferent about it because realistically, Salernitana hasn't been terribly relevant. They've only played two seasons in Serie A, most recently in 98-99, and we were in Serie B at the time. Perhaps that will change this upcoming season, but I imagine this rivalry will be really no different than the one with Benevento. That will do for part two. In part three, we'll preview our match on Sunday against Fiorentina. In the final part, we'll quickly preview our match on Sunday against Fiorentina. 
This is the lunchtime fixture in Italy, which means those of us in Canada, the US, or elsewhere in the Eastern time zone will be up bright and early. Fiorentina are coming into this match having already achieved salvation. They are 8 points clear of Benevento in that final relegation spot. That means they have next to nothing to play for, which should work out in our favor. As we talked about in part 1, Udinese were in a similar situation when we played against them midweek, and we already talked about how that game went. Fiorentina did have something to play for in their most recent match, which was against Cagliari. Heading into that match, Fiorentina were 7 points clear of Benevento with 3 games left to play, so technically they had not achieved salvation yet. That was one of the worst games I've ever seen. The match finished 0-0, and the two clubs combined for only one shot on target over the entire match. It seemed to me they were playing for the draw, which made sense for Fiorentina, but didn't make much sense for Cagliari. As I noted in part 2, they are not safe just yet, and they have a tough match against Milan. The little bit of incentive that Fiorentina do have is that they want to avenge the 6-0 defeat to us earlier in the season. Now, Cesare Prandelli was in charge for that match. Of course, he's since stepped down for personal reasons, but everything else about the club is essentially unchanged. Many Napoli fans have been quick to point out the parallels to the match against Fiorentina from the 2017-18 campaign. Fiorentina effectively ended our Scudetto hopes by defeating us 3-0 on match day 35 that season. Now they have a chance to end our hopes of qualifying for the Champions League. Ironically, that same weekend in 2018, Inter played Juventus as well. Juve won that one 3-2, so hopefully both matches go differently this time around. The last thing I'll point to before we get to our starting lineups is that Rino Gattuso has been heavily linked to the coaching position at Fiorentina. Prior to securing salvation, some had speculated that Gattuso might try to protect his future job by helping Fiorentina out here. Now that Fiorentina are safe, I think that theory can be discarded. But even if Fiorentina were still in the relegation battle, I still did not subscribe to that view. I think that would be a very narrow-minded approach. These days, coaches rarely stay at a club for more than two or three seasons. I think getting Napoli back into the Champions League would be great for Gattuso's CV, and I think if he fails to do so, he could start to develop a reputation for being a coach who can get you very close to the Champions League, but always falls short. That's already happened once with Milan, so he won't want it to happen again with Napoli. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Pepe Iacchini typically lines up in the 3-5-2 with Bartolome Dragovski in goal. Dragovski was subbed out of the Cagliari match with a muscular injury, so we could see Pietro Terracciano get the start in this one. Giuseppe Pezzella and Nikola Milenkovic almost always start in that three-man back line, while Martin Caceres, Lucas Martinez Cuarta, and occasionally Igor rotate in the other positions. I'll take Caceres to get the start. Cristiano Biraghi is the left wing back, and Luca Venuti is the right wing back. Like with his back three, Iacchini rotates his midfield three as well. Sofian Amrabat, Gaetano Castrovilli, Giacomo Bonaventura, and Eric Pulgar have all been sharing time pretty equally lately. Bonaventura played midweek, so given his age, I'm inclined to think that we'll see Castrovilli in the middle, with Pulgar to his left and Amrabat to his right. Finally, we should see Frank Ribery and Dusan Vlahovic together up top. For Napoli, Gennaro Gattuso will line up in his usual 4-2-3-1. I think Alex Meret will remain in goal for the balance of the season. Even with the midweek fixture, I think he could easily handle two more matches. Kaladu Koulibaly continues to do therapy, so Amir Rachmani will start in his place. Personally, I think Koulibaly is done for the season. He definitely is if Juve draw points to Inter, but I think he's still out for that final game against Hellas Verona regardless. Kostas Manolas will play at the other center back position while Nikola Maksimovic continues to recover from COVID. 
Alcide Hisai seems to be the preferred option at left back. Gattuso doesn't seem to care that we renewed Mario Rui and that Hisai will walk away at the end of the season. I'm actually fine with that. Gattuso's job is to get us back into the Champions League, and if he thinks Hisai is the guy that gives us the best chance to get there, then by all means play Hisai. Giovanni Di Lorenzo will start at right back. We should see Diego Demme return after resting for the Udinese match. He will play alongside Fabian Ruiz. Lorenzo Insigne will start on the left wing. As always, the most difficult position to predict is who will play on the right wing. I'm going to guess that it will be Chucky Lozano again. It was great to see Dries Mertens get 20 minutes in the Udinese game, but I think Piotr Zielinski will play in the 10th spot so long as we're still competing for Champions League qualification. Finally, Victor Osimhen will start again at striker. So those are our starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match is a pretty obvious one, and that is to stop Dusan Vlahovic. He leads Fiorentina in goals, and much like Victor Osimhen, he's enjoyed most of his success in the second half of the season. He has 12 goals in his last 9 matches, and is now up to 21 goals on the season. He's averaged a goal every 66 minutes during that 9-game stretch. Like Osimhen, he's still very young, he's only 21 years of age, so his best years are yet to come. Believe it or not, he's actually slightly taller than Osimhen as well, but Vlahovic is a bit more filled out. It goes without saying that if you stop Vlahovic, then you stop Fiorentina, but here's a crazy stat. Fiorentina's record this season when Vlahovic doesn't score is 2 wins, 7 losses, and 11 defeats. That's only 7 points in 20 matches. Our second key to the match is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other words, keep playing the long ball to Victor Osimhen. Even if the opponent knows that is exactly what we're going to do, they simply cannot stop him. Spezia tried to stop him by playing a high line in the hopes they catch him offside, and that just gave Osimhen acres of space to run into. Udinese tried to defend him in a low block, and his runs just pushed that back line too deep and gave us the space we needed in the midfield. So who knows, maybe Fiorentina will try the third option, which is the mid block, but until it stops working, we need to keep feeding Osimhen. Our final key to the match is one that we've used quite often this season, which is that we need to be careful not to get caught on the counterattack. I must say we've been much better at defending the counter in the second half of the season, and I think that's largely because we have reduced the number of costly mistakes. But despite their struggles this season, Fiorentina do still have a lot of talented players that can punish you on the counterattack. They have wily veterans like Frank Ribéry, Jack Monaventura, and Cristiano Biraghi. They have young players like Gaetano Castrovilli and Sofian Amrabat. Castrovilli has had an up and down season, one that I think most would consider a disappointment given the expectations we had for him heading into this season. You can probably say the same of Amrabat, though I think he's been much better in the second half of the season. By the way, I think both of these players can get back to their peak with a coach like Gattuso in charge. Eric Pulgar is another speedy player to watch out for on the counterattack, and he's good from set pieces. And finally, as I've already mentioned, they have the finisher for those counterattacks in Vlahovic. The head official for this match is Rosario Abiso. He's officiated four Napoli matches since 2017, all of which were Napoli victories, including the 2-0 win over Benevento in February. His assistants are Alberto Tegoni and Luca Mondin. The fourth official is Juan Luca Sacchi, and Daniela Kifi is on the VAR, assisted by Alessandro Costanzo. For my prediction, I'm going to go with the 3-1 Napoli win. I'll give Victor Osimhen a brace, and I'll give the other goal to Piotr Zielinski. While we've been getting results, we haven't been getting too many clean sheets, which is why I have Fiorentina scoring a goal. And if they're going to score a goal, it's probably going to come from Dusan Vlahovic. I think this match will play out very similarly to the match against Udinese. We have everything to play for, while Fiorentina have nothing to play for. 
As competitive as these players are, Fiorentina just won't be as motivated and that will reflect in their play. I have to admit I am a little bit concerned about the day and the time of the match. I've really enjoyed being the first match of the round for the last two rounds. This match is on Sunday which means Atalanta, Juve and Lazio all will have played already. They all play on Saturday starting with Atalanta against Genoa. Then we have the big match of the round with Juve Inter and then Lazio play the late game against Roma. I hate that we'll know the result of the Juve Inter game regardless of the outcome. I think that will just put added pressure on this team and we know that they don't have the strongest mentality. That said, that cannot be an excuse. They're professionals and a Champions League caliber team should be able to get results under pressure. Likewise, while I'm not fond of the early start simply because it's a bit outside of the norm, that cannot be an excuse either. A win here will say a lot about the mental fortitude of this club and whether that has improved like our results have in the second half of the season. That will do for this preview. I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please share it with a friend and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5 or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. I'll be back with you next week to review this match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.